is Transitional Matters with Chris Marshall. With Chris Marshall. We've gathered the best thinkers from around the world to talk about the most important social, environmental, financial, technological, and geopolitical transitions that affect your life. Transitional Matters is all about bringing the greatest thinkers directly to your ears. The most important trends, megatrends, and transitions that are going on around us. Now zip up and put your headphones on. Broadcasting direct from the UK, here's your host, Chris Marshall. Well, welcome to this episode of Transitional Matters. Today, I'm joined by Arnold and Nick. And Arnold and Nick both work in different parts of the military, and I'm going to get them to give them a, a quick bio and introduction to us. But really, what we've got them on today, and I think we're going to broaden this out a lot further, but I'm going to call it the future of warfare we're going to talk about kind of learning through gaming. We're going to talk about kind of all these things going on. And you guys can really bring in from what you see with Fight Club International. So can I just start with you, Arnold? Can I get you just to give a 30-second introduction to the audience of who you are? And then we'll come to you, Nick, as well. Yes, Chris. No, thank you. Uh, thank you very much indeed for having us on your podcast. So I'm a U.S. Army strategist with uh, 23 years in the Army a mix of uh, conventional and special operations assignments with combat deployments all over. But I'm also an academic pursuing a part-time PhD at King's College London under the supervision of Dr. Bob Foley, who Nick and I, and I have shared as, uh, as professors, the best at King's, and uh, Davey Banks at the Wargaming Department. But I'm, I'm currently here now at the War College in the Joint Advanced Warfighting School. It is a small but elite institution that teaches strategy and history, um, the rigorous study and theory, and, it, and that's me. Superb, Arnold. Nick, can I get just, a, a, again, a 30-second potted history of your career and, and how you ended up here? Sure. Chris, thanks for having us on. I should say, Arnold and I are, are good mates. We, we've sort of worked together for a few years now. I'm a 17-year infantry officer. I've spent a lot of that time actually in very specialist roles. I'm currently commanding a battalion of Gurkhas in the 16-air assault brigade in, in the United Kingdom. But I'd say the last few years, I've really got into sort of innovation and experimentation. In, in a very various roles. I think the thing that's probably most pertinent to this podcast is, you know, I, w- I worked recently with some industry partners to really look at how we can rapidly improve the efficiencies of our targeting processes. So that's identifying targets through to striking them. And we had a hypothesis that we could achieve a 75% increase in speed with a 75% reduction in workforce in sort of human power. And, uh, and we achieved right. that recently in a trial. And I think what we were really doing there was, was handing processes over to machine learning and leaving judgment with the user, with the human. And, and that's really the theme of the article we wrote together. Amazing. I'm going to come back to a lot of these things that you just said, because I'm, I'm now fascinated and curious by some of those things. Can I just start just by asking both of you? Cause I, I guess really where I kind of reached out to you was I discovered this organization that you're both in, involved with, Fight Club International. Can you kind of explain what that is and what drove you to get that and set that up? So Fight Club was started uh, several years ago. Uh, I was fortunate enough to be a, an embed in the British Army. And one thing that me and some of my peers saw was that there was a lot of commercial technology and gaming techniques that were available to use that we weren't using in the government. And so we set this club you know, we just called it Fight Club because we thought it was kind of catchy and we were trying to appeal to a younger audience to build a, this bottom-up initiative, a, really as an experiment, to create a community of practitioners that are going to play a variety of games for different reasons, for education, training, for analytical purposes, so that we can just think differently. We can improve decision-making. 
through these experiences that are realistic, challenging, and fun. And I think there's so much going on at Fight Club. It, it would take a while, a whole podcast. Just, there's so many incredible people involved, but that's essentially it. It's a club of uh, practitioners just trying to, on their own time, it's not part of the government, that are playing a variety of different games. And we're trying to transition them over to use in the government. So that's it in a nutshell. When you use the word game there, can I kind of just drill into this? Because are we talking kind of like the same thing as video games or is it different? No, that's a good question, Chris, because in the military, we tend to use the word war games. And I don't think it's very helpful because we're not just doing war games. Uh, We're really, we're playing a variety of different games. There's different categories. There's obviously digital games. We're playing less Call of Duty because, you know, we're not just running around shoot people in the face and, you know, having fun in that, in that regard. But we're, we're playing manual games that are your traditional, like a board game, like your Monopoly, but they're designed to teach something about whether it's humanitarian relief, disasters, or if there are some kind of maneuver moving brigades around on a map. There are digital tools, uh, simulations that can facilitate simulating effects across different domains. So the air, land, and sea is how do these different, you know, war is getting very hard. I know we're going to talk about this in the future war. It's getting very complex and dynamic. And so trying to, there's so many variables out there. There's so many things and just trying to see how they interact in these games and how you can employ different tools and combine arms to deliver different types of effects. I mean, it's really important that you train and simulate that in a game before you do it in live in the physical world. So I, I want to come to the article that really kind of made me reach out to you. I think the title was something along the lines of why gamers will win the next war. That's um, it. And secondly, could you just explain some of the things which led to that? Because that was, as I said, that was really what made me reach out to you in the first place. And I think you've pulled out some fascinating points. It's quite complex, Chris. And there are sort of a couple of different factors that kind of went into the article. Effectively, the title, Why Gamers Will Win the Next War, that, that was really just to be provocative and to create conversation. And really at the heart of the article is about how I think I would argue that the precursor to any innovation and experimentation, i.e. bringing about meaningful change that will last, starts with self-awareness and your own internal culture. So the cultures of the organizations you're a part of and really stripping it back to understanding what are the heuristics that are, are shaping the way we see the world today and the way we employ capabilities today in whatever walk of life, because we are all the product of nurture as much as nature. So we have been sort of conditioned, particularly in an institution like the military, to sort of see and view the world in a certain way. There's a sort of narrative around what good looks like. And what I would observe is that with a lot of quotation marks innovation, it's really looking at how people would augment an existing way of doing things. And I felt actually that probably the first question to ask yourself is, with this new capability, what is it going to uninvent? Okay, so if it can do something that's really capable, what does it mean we no longer need to do so we can use humans more efficiently in that process? And that was kind of like this underlying driver to write a sort of story to sort of say, actually, I think before we start talking about really complex innovations, let's just start by understanding how we observe the world. And when yeah. to get into the specifics of kind of winning wars and gamers and things, a lot of people took us literally and sort of Arnell and I got a lot of like feedback from kind of people who were getting angry saying, you can't have kids in bedrooms fighting wars and stuff like this. And we're like, no, no, no that, that wasn't the point. The point was this, that... Fighting wars really is about commanding, like making good decisions. And commanders, in my view, and, and I think Arnell would agree that 
Commanders have to put themselves in the right place at the right time to make the right decision. You make your money as a commander by making good decisions. And really, one of the, the, the key things that's happening in the world is that, and, and everyone knows this, is that we're seeing more and more opportunities to exploit data. But it is to a point where it may overwhelm us as teams, as institutions, and as human beings. And really, what we need to understand is how much of that can we divest to a machine to do it more efficiently than us, and how much of it must remain the preserve of human. And really, what we were saying with the gamers was actually that there are two worlds out there. There's the world of the kind of the military officer who grows up in a storied institution and gets an example of leadership that is based around physical presence on a battlefield. And question mark, I'm not saying whether it's true or not. Are they in the best place to assimilate the amount of data that is out there to continue to make the best decisions? Juxtaposed against gamers who are very, very adept at doing this, whether they're in very immersive games or whether they're in sort of standoff strategy games. Fundamentally, gaming is about assimilating data and making good decisions through that processes. So we weren't really advocating that we kind of hand over warfare to young men and women in their bedrooms on their games consoles. What we were really saying was, hey, to understand how we're going to make the most of technological change, let's just be aware of the things that might be driving us already in the wrong direction and and how do we sort of pause think about the heuristics that affect us and then say okay what is it about technology that allows us to do things better that's really how we approach the article and then i'll hand over to arnell all i'll add is that we got you know some hecklers about oh i can't these kids going about playing video games and doing war but that was really small i think the greater response was positive about forcing ourselves to think differently about how do we, you know, leverage the talent we have within our formations? And so for business leaders and for military leaders, dare we squander the talent that exists within our organizations? And, you know, we're in this world now that, you know, almost everybody's been some, at some, at some time in their life a gamer and they play games. And so what we're finding is there's a lot of people with lots of games that, uh, they're playing games, they're consigning them and we're just, we're unearthing that talent. It's, the article's done. It's made. It's made. It really has made the rounds, and so quite proud that Nick, that Nick and I, Nick leading the way there to get that article out there. It really went around to different communities, not just the military. I think that's a fascinating insight you've just pulled out there. Absolutely. I, I'm, I'm trying to remember. There's a stat which is kind of it's not quite on the tip of my tongue, but I think it was Stanford University. And I know this is slightly different to what you're saying, but it's it's kind of broadens this topic out from warfare to a more general theme. And I'm sure Stanford brought out, they did a study on the effect of gaming and VR on the effectiveness of learning in adults. And I'm pretty sure it was something like a 76% increase in effectiveness. So it's not just actually what you're saying. I mean, it goes further, doesn't it? Games immerse us in a learning environment that otherwise sometimes we don't have access to. Absolutely. You know, I, to build on that that thread, the intelligence agency, um, IARPA, Applied Research Lab, I think it's IARPA, is acronym like DARPA in the US. So they, they do a lot of high-end research and experimentation on the future of war, what kind of capabilities can we build. And I remember as a major, like years ago, they did a study on how gaming is improving mental agility at all ages. And they, I mean, they did a like a very high-end study with leading research universities, and they found that it is in fact indeed creating mental agility. So for us in the military, and even for anyone civilians, like everyone's worried about their bodies and improving their physical appearance and, and lifting weights and reps and sets to hypertrophy their muscles. Well, how are you doing that for your mind? 
And so that's one thing to think about is like, how are you training your mind to continue to be agile, to be adaptive? It's really interesting how we do need to examine our models for how we're teaching and educating. For us in the military, this is a big, you know, shortfall, I believe. The way we do business now is that we spend lots, enormous amounts of time planning, but we don't really exercise that plan. We don't fight it. And even for strategy in the business world, you can build a strategy, but if you haven't tried to test it out and test your hypothesis in some way with some kind of game or some kind of simulation, it's all implementation. So strategy making and strategy, it's all about the execution is 90% of the problem and uh, diagnosis and trying to figure out what you're going to do is about 10% in my opinion. I'd just add that there is a real like irony in all of this, in, in my opinion, in that often when we train in the military, but I think it's true for any sort of walk of life, if we train physically i.e. we're outside we're in the environment we are with our soldiers you know we're running around we're doing the things that we would do in warfare there's an assumption that that is reality i.e. because you're physically doing it you are getting an objective experience that allows you to learn lessons whereas gaming is seen as this kind of fun synthetic sort of frivolous environment and yet because the data capture in that environment can be so much more profound Actually, it is the more objective environment a lot of the time. So whereas um, Arnell is the sort of the pioneer of Fight Club, I'm, I'm an, an adopter. And at my unit, we use Fight Club really at the very low level just to simply test very, very small parts of our tactical processes against realistic data sets. So it, effectively, it looks like a computer game, but everything in it is applying real world data sets to say, if you did this for real this is the likely output that you would have. But if you make variation X, you can have improvement Y. If you make you know, variation Z, then you'll see degradation, you know, whatever. And it's getting our soldiers, i.e. this is physically having, having this impact, is I'm seeing that it's making people think twice about the sort of tactics they might employ. Because what they're learning outside is effectively it's about sort of aggression and physical determination and fortitude wins in the end. Well, fortitude... Is, is really important, but so is intellect and outthinking. And I find that, you know, the gaming world that really Arnell's driving forward, as he said, it's awesome for testing and developing the intellectual side of, of warfare. Yeah, I mean, I, I was just going to bring some of the data and things that I've seen that kind of backs up what you, you, what you guys are saying here. My theory of where we are right now is a kind of, I'm going to broaden this out to human race is you can define each kind of innovation era by a kind of a zeitgeist. So I would call the era that we've just come through the age of data or the age of measurement. And the semiconductor, which is kind of that power behind everything that we enjoy today, really, has just allowed us to build those incredible data sets and measure stuff. What my theory is, the age we're now transitioning to, is what I'm going to term the age of awareness. And we're suddenly now using that data to give us feedback, whether it's, as you said, Arnold, whether it's kind of like looking after our nutrition or, or kind of how much exercise we do, or whether in my world, in the investment world, people are making more environmental investment choices. Or in the military, as you say, you're now using that data to train virtually and to give yourself feedback on the quality of your decision outcomes so that you can make real life decisions. I'm pretty sure it was. I was stood in Euston Station in London the other day, and I'm sure it was Meta had a, um, a an advert up, and it was something about a surgeon, and they said something like, "In the future, surgeons will train with VR and kind of this augmented reality." And I guess that's what you guys are also seeing in the military field. You can see that actually happening. I like that age of awareness. I mean, I never thought of it that way, but I can see your point there. And and you're right; it's not rise of the machines and robots that 
we're looking at the future, what you're seeing, what we're seeing from us playing around with these games and technologies is that it's making better humans, you know, improving human decision making. It's making us come together more to collaborate and be creative because the best processor on the planet is still the human brain, in my opinion. And, uh, we shouldn't take that for granted. We're seeing that every day in, in, in not just war, but outside of it, right? Is that decision making and humans being able to make decisions on the ground is super important. And I think the gaming is, is generating better decision makers. I mean, it's, I think it's a fallacy to think that if you just keep planning and doing strategy making stuff without any kind of repeated practice, that you're going to get any better. Like the only way to get better, you know, just to use military parlance, I mean, if you want to get better at fighting, you're going to have to fight. You know, there's, there's only, that's the only way to get better, right? And so, if you want to get better at soccer, what are you going to do? You're going to start lifting weights all the time. Like you're going to play lots of soccer. And I think that's, I think it carries through multiple disciplines. I've seen that sort of meta advert as well. And uh, it's quite interesting because I know quite a few medics. And uh, this goes back to the article. They, they're like, no, nah, you can never do that. Humans have to do that. You can't. And there's this sort of um, mental barrier that I think is this human, it's a, the human factor within your point about awareness and the premise of technology is there's a human barrier to breakthrough, which is like the barrier of possibility. And I've got this yeah. kind of slightly hackneyed analogy that the sort of the fancy dinner party analogy, which is in 1969, you know, the number one guest on somebody's fantasy dinner party would have been Neil Armstrong, the most enlightened okay. man on the planet, because he's the only man, well, one of a handful of people, one of two people who've actually stood outside of the Earth's orbit and look back at the Earth. So the most enlightened man yeah. at, you know, out there. And by the early 2000s is the biggest critique of what Elon Musk is trying to do in terms of SpaceX and saying, it can't happen. It's impossible. It won't work. And I think that that's a really important point in terms of how really, yes, technology has the ability to profoundly change the world, but it's humans that are going to make those leaps. You know, and it takes quite courageous human beings to actually sort of argue back against conventional wisdom and say, no, I don't care that you say this won't work. I believe it can work and I'm going to show you how it's going to work. We're going to do this completely differently to how we've done it in the past and we're going to reinvent the wheel, but we're going to do it differently. And this is the way we're going to do it. And so I think we've got, as you said with Zeitgeist, like it's actually the courageous that do this, those who dare to say, why not? and push to the next bound and say, actually, why not? Why can we not have entirely driverless cars? Why can we not have entirely pilotless aircraft? Again, in the article, what we're talking about is humans like to be relevant. They like to see themselves as central to every process. But I would agree with what Arnel said, which is our greatest capability isn't our dexterity. It isn't our agility. It isn't our hand-eye coordination. It's the processing in our brain. All of that other stuff, you can do better with computers. So why don't we just focus on the things we are exclusively brilliant at, which is making good decisions, I, I would say, and good judgment, and then trust and drive forward the application of technology to take on things that could be done better using technology. Absolutely. I think it's almost that Hollywood narrative, isn't it? That makes people so fearful of the future of AI, AR robotics, because they've painted this kind of narrative. It works wonderfully in films, doesn't it? This kind of uh, where robots become our overlords, we just get kept as pets kind of thing. But of course, I don't actually see that <laughs> as the potential outcome is exactly what you're saying is data processing, like massive amounts of data we are not that good at. 
we basically just get overloaded. We get cognitive overload and we become very, very fatigued very quickly. But what we are incredible at, which you've just pulled out, is this innovative ability. It's actually going to, in my opinion, again, going to give us this almost like superhuman ability in the future. That we'll be able to harness all that data and add into it human's best ability, which in, in my view is that creativity, innovation, and everything else. But the other point I was just going to come back to, which you're absolutely right about, we've got to therefore allow humans to navigate away from clinging to the status quo. Essentially, what we're doing at a cognitive level is we're introducing uncertainty. And there's one thing that we hate, <laughs> and that's uncertainty. We do anything to kind of crave some certainty. So I was going to come back to some of the things that maybe you're seeing come out of that data with Fight Club, because I know that you guys have got so much data. Have you got any examples of kind of things which you've seen come through, which are really interesting? Sure, Chris. And, you know, I think it's important to mention that Fight Club, like it's as, as this club and network, is that we're, we're connected to a lot of other organizations, and one of which over in the UK is DSTL. And Andrew Elliott, definitely want to drop his name since Nick and I are both working with him, um, a brilliant, talented individual in the UK at DSTL. He's come up with this idea of decentralized gaming, centralized analysis. And he's emphasized the point about what are we doing with the data? Because I'm like, let's just get going. Let's start playing games. Let's just look at specific use cases. And and, we'll, and the story will grow about how, how good this gaming is. And he's more in the analytical sense of like, yeah, but we're going to have, at the end of the day, we have to collect all this information up. You know, this point of collective intelligence and crowdsourcing information ideas. And what we've seen, so uh, it's really early days because we, I don't oversell it. Like we're just playing around with this idea, but we did do an initial pull of data from this game called Combat Mission, where it's very tactical. Um, it's where your lieutenants and captains, maybe some majors, are maneuvering around different forces at that level. And we did was we we also let civilians play it. You know, guys that have no military experience. And one interesting thing we pointed this out in the article is that early, you know, it's early days, and this is not evidence, but you know, yet, but. A lot of the civilians are playing better than us in terms of how they would apply operational art or what we, you know, is what we would call, it, but maneuver and tactics. Because I think that they're not clinging to dogmatic process that we have in our doctrine. And to be honest, like when's the last time we really tested some of this? Like we've been, I'm sure Nick can, can test this. That we've all been doing counterterrorism and counterinsurgency for the last two decades. And we're just returning back now to large, you know, mount, mountains of metal maneuvering around the battlefield with lots of men and, uh, and women. And we need to start. The gaming is helping us test these ideas out. How does this all work now again? Because, I mean, here's, you know, conventional war back on the continent of Europe. And we need to think about these things. As a layperson with, like, no military background, could you walk me through just kind of how the, I, I guess, the strategy of warfare has changed through history? to where we are now because you know as, a, as an outsider we look in and it's kind of you're still sending men over borders yes they've got like the assistance of drones and things but from a kind of that long history point of view how has it changed yeah i mean it so we can go into the changes but it's it's also important to remember what are the continuities and the nature of war that has not changed and you know we always in the military especially in the west we love clausewitz because his his tome on on war von craig it's timeless and his theory of war is still very, you know, it's still very vital because, you know, the nature of war, it's, it's going to be spiraling violence. It's a competition, a duel, as he, he, was, he argues. I mean, those things have not changed. Now, what we're seeing that may have changed is this pervasive access to information and how important it is to be able to influence people through social media or through just through messaging because we're so hyper-connected 
across the planet. And I think that particular character of war is changing. Is like how you know, we're have to study how do people interpret or different audiences. Uh, there's a great book by another Royal Gork officer that Nick probably knows, Emil Simpson, War from the Ground Up. And he argues this is that Clausewitz had said, you know, it's about imposing our will upon someone else. Well, he's saying it's about imposing our message upon a specific target audience or an audience of the people. And that's getting becoming central to, to war nowadays. And I, I tend to agree with that. It's something to study. And I think we're kind of behind a little bit on how, how does that, how does that work? Because we're so worried about the prefrontal cortex of the brain messing to rationality when most people make decisions based off emotion, and that's the amygdala. You know, that's the the other part of your brain. And I don't think we have enough people or specialists that are studying that to know how that works. Because in Afghanistan, as an example, you know, the Taliban was appealing to people's emotion by saying there's a corruption and justice, and the people are like getting pissed off. And like we can sit there and say, no, no, we're we're trying to build a stable government and blah blah blah. But the Taliban knew how to tug at the emotional cords of the population and and, and get them raised up. I think we need to study this more because uh, we should learn from that recent conflict and I forget it. But I'm sure Nick has a lot of ideas about what's changing with the character of war. It's a funny one, this one, because it, it, it'll get people so animated, you know, in terms of when you're talking about sort of strategy and things like that. I mean, my view is quite simplistic in that I think through the history of war, you see changes in terms of the schools of thought. But what you've got to remember is that that is just opinion. It's powerful opinion because yeah. it's coalesced behind kind of, I guess, again, you know, military zeitgeist and, and Clausewitz is perhaps one of the most famous of them all. But you typically find that you have these sort of schools of thought or, or doctrine, I guess you might say, in military circles that probably since 20th century started to reflect the advancements in technology. So you would see things like um, air land battle, which the idea of, you know, air forces and ground forces working together in sort of synergy, which then evolved into this idea of joint warfare. And, and that's really bringing all capabilities together, the right capability at the right time. And you see this manifested in, again, to Arnell's point about how TV sort of influenced the 20th century. You see these iconic moments of 1991, you know, the kind of Scud missiles, precision munitions off F-117 stealth aircraft going through windows in the Iraq campaign. But this is really just schools of thought reflecting changes in technology. For me, strategy is, is slightly simpler than that, but we overcomplicate it because that's our tendency as humans. And without wanting to sound sort of pseudo-intellectual about it, for me, I, I really think that Sun Tzu got it completely right in that, you know, his simple, he was almost too brilliant that people were like, well, he didn't, you know, it's too simplistic, you know, move on, find me something slightly more complex that's therefore more intellectual, but, you know, know thyself and know thy enemy. And, you know, in a thousand years, you, you'll never lose a battle sort of thing. Yeah, really, that's about proclivity. What is my proclivity to act in a certain way? And what is the enemy's proclivity to act in a certain way? And how do I find the code that pits, unlocks his superficial strengths with my capabilities? And really, what he's saying is, avoid conceit because conceit is the pathway to failure you know the enemy will be conceited about what they think they are very strong at and what they're capable at and we can be conceited into thinking what we're good at and really it's about that self-awareness that inner sense of actually in this moment right here right now 
What is it that we can do that will give us the advantage? Now, I think that that if you use that as your baseline for, for every time you engage in a military campaign for how you're developing your strategy, then you are making a strategy that fits the problem. So often, I think we have a tendency to try and supplant a strategy onto a problem and say, hey, this is this type of problem. So it's a coin strategy, you know, lift and drop coin strategy, counterinsurgency, I should say, this is how it's supposed to be. And that's, it's almost like trying to put a management process over the anarchy of human activity. Humans will do what humans want to do. They won't conform to your plan just because it's a really good plan. But the one thing I would say that I think is, is, something that is definitely changing in warfare and it's sort of evident today yet we haven't fully clocked it and i actually think this is somewhere where definitely wargaming should go in the future is that actually the bit that we talk about when we talk about war i.e missiles bombs things blowing up the, the carnage of warfare is just but one face of a conflict there is the social the cultural and the economic Therefore, when we look at wargaming at the sort of strategic level, I think we're increasingly going to need to play in all of these dynamics, and it becomes incredibly complex. And at the same time, we also have to look at war without, you know, it's war without a bullet fired, but it's it's an economic warfare, it's a cultural warfare that is going on all around us today, and yet we don't go looking for it because we're used, our minds are preconditioned to this more violent form of war. And therefore, I think it's the non-violent wars that are really going to probably define the 21st century, in, in my view. Very well put. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the kind of one of the things that the themes that I see going on right now, which I think plays into just what you're saying there, we know from history that we go through these periods of kind of uh, what I'm going to call a kind of changing global order. Just before the start of the World War One, obviously, Britain had led the Industrial Revolution all the way through to steel manufacturing. And then we started to lose the economic powerhouse of the world. Two rising powers in the steel world, Germany and the US. And, you know, certainly on that economic front, I think we're seeing those global tensions play out US-China, which is a very interesting you know, that you've kind of brought that into a face of war. You know, it's certainly something that, that I look at as an investment strategist as a, as kind of a, it is a, it is a true war underneath. It's a comp- two countries with completely different ideologies that uh, it's not just about tariffs <laughs> or, or stealing some IP. It's, it's far, far deeper than that. Really interesting things that you pulled out. Yeah. I mean, I'll just add to what Nick said. I mean, the, the one person remembers the, the late Sir Michael Howard. He said, we're going to get it wrong. You know, it's not what's really important is about, you know, it's a side that's able to adapt. The fastest and most efficiently, it's going to prevail in conflict and competition. And I think that still stands, that wisdom. So, Never forget why you're fighting, because sometimes that can happen. You can focus on the conflict, but you've got to remember the underlying drivers. Like, what are you fighting for? Now, sometimes that is for a global common or an existential reason in which the conflict itself you know, has a direct relationship with the desired end state. You have to win on the battle in order to win your ends. What I think we need to be aware of is in this century is probably always the case, but, but I'm making the point looking into the future is what is it that defense and security exists for? And in my opinion, it's about the well-being, welfare and safety of your people, that your taxpayers. That's why they pay their taxes. And that is not just about physical threat to them, but it's, it's increasingly about their way of life, their job security, their, you know, financial security, environmental securities, for example. And so 
the idea of defending these non-existential securities means that we need to think about where our strategy lands geographically and what is it that that affects us and what i'm specifically referring to here is you know in the 21st century access to semiconductors is is vital but so is the rare earths that effectively constitute those semiconductors now that may be that that our greatest threats in the century are also p- pursuing those same rare earths but they might not be doing it in the place where they are presenting militarily the strongest right now it may be that they're offsetting that and they're operating in other continents and the danger is is that we because of our underlying heuristic around hard power is that we focus on the muscles flexing as opposed to the underlying long-term insidious strategies which is pushing and promoting a kind of cultural, economic, and sort of infrastructural empire around the world. And I guess I'm specifically talking about, you know, really monitoring what what sort of the long-term future of Chinese involvement around the BRI and things like that looks like, vice what the threats might look around the Paracel and the Spratly Islands in, in the Far East. And we've got to understand that in the bigger strategic play of kind of 21st century competition. I've got a question to kind of, um, I, I want to end by broadening this out into kind of where you see this gaming space really kind of having effect you know, as we look into the future. But before we get there, I've just actually got a question about some of this data that we're seeing and the ability to, let's say, practice a theatre of war before you get there or, or whatever, you know, the application is. Does that make it easier or harder to go to war? Does it make war less likely or more likely? In my opinion, I mean, I think war is definitely not easy and for any nation state and you can just ask Russia right now. I mean, I'm sure that they're like, this stuff is pretty hard, right? And um, as much gaming and, and practicing as we do, it will never ignore the fact that, you know, there's a lot of human suffering right now and, and war is a pretty nasty business and it's ugly, it's horrible. And therefore, I don't think it'll ever be easy, in my opinion. What do you think, Nick? I mean, are you effectively asking, is it likely that technology will give greater confidence to go to war than they might have done in, in the past under the premise that, yeah, I think that so. the technology will allow? Yeah. So, yes, I think there is a risk that people put a lot of stock and a lot of confidence Uh, and effectively become conceited behind their own ability to win a quick battle. And let's be honest, that's exactly what happened in the Ukraine, whereby Putin thought that his capabilities vastly outstripped the ability of Ukraine to put up meaningful resistance, and therefore he could win a quick war, and it would all be done and dusted by now. Technological advantage surely played some role in underlying sort of confidence to go to war on, on his part. Now, my view is that it will allow you to win quicker battles, I think. Okay. Like really exquisite technology will allow you to win, you know, quicker battles. But I've got a slight, like, a sort of philosophical view, i.e. There's, there's nothing necessarily behind this, that inefficiency in warfare is the saving grace. It is the saving grace because it is the thing that allows other human dynamics to start to play out. If all wars were quick, I think we would see more of them. They would be more violent. They would be more destructive. They would probably escalate quicker. You know, it wouldn't be fundamentally good for humankind. Whereas I think inefficiencies in warfare, i.e. failing, learning, stalemates, small defeats, 
they're the things that make people think twice about what they're doing. They're the things that give opportunities for off-ramps. They're the things that allow for diplomacy to step in. Because if you could guarantee a win, why would you negotiate your way out? And yeah. so I think that, yeah, in summary, yes, it's going to lead to quicker battles, those small tactical engagements that might take place over days, hours, maybe even weeks. But it's fundamentally not going to make warfare a better proposition for mankind. It's going to make it something that we need to avoid all the more because it's a hellish, brutal failing of sort of human's ability to coexist. So we have to start to think about how we prevent that, you know, more and more. Superb. So to finish, can I just get your views on how you see this kind of all these things we've been talking about? Can you broaden it out from that the military space and some of the things that you, I guess, really excited about you see coming through? Yeah, I definitely want to leave on a good high note here from <laughs> the brutality of war. So the Fight Club and what we're doing with the gaming stuff, it has broadened out already a number of different universities with uh, with our youth playing games, not just about war, but all kinds of stuff. I mean, even business. So Dove had reached out, um, the sub company, okay. to our our group in the United Kingdom to, to to have a gaming away day. And I think why they're doing that, and I don't know the specifics yet because our team there is handling it, but they just want to have a good time, but also just get people out of the office and start thinking differently about problems. Because what's amazing about games, there's a great quote by Thomas Schelling that a person cannot do is no matter how rigorous his or her analysis might be or heroic, their imagination is to, to drop a list of things that would never occur to them, you know? And so I, I think that's rather brilliant because what the gaming does, it just, it, it really incentivizes creative thinking because you, you're playing games, you're getting, and you're getting different stories, you're getting different experiences and it's really unleashing our imagination, which, you know, you never can do that enough. Right. So it's always lacking in, in lots of organizations that I've been in is like, let's see what the art of the possible is. And that's why it's been a real pleasure to work with Nick Moran and, when we were together at the NATO Allied Action Corps, because together me and him were a force of nature trying to do a lot of that and just trying to push change because everyone talks innovation, but innovation is really an adoption of, a, of such technology, concept, idea, and change. And it's it's woven into the culture of that organization. That's really hard to do. And I, think, I don't think many people do that. Nick and I really worked hard to do that. And I think we achieved it where we were at in the, in the last command we b- both belonged to. I think that's what's really exciting about what's going on now with this gaming and all the stuff we're doing is that's driving a bottom-up approach with the appropriate amount of top cover or buy-in from our, our senior leadership to really just unlock and unleash the potential. And, and it's catalytic in terms of developing massive change in these organizations. And we're, we brought it to NATO and we'll continue to do so. So it's pretty exciting stuff. That leaves me just to kind of say... Um... Thank you very much for your time. Uh, Nick, I don't know whether you've got any final final words and thoughts on, on that kind of last question. Yeah, just briefly. I mean, I think for me, it's two things that gets me really excited as, as potential, you know, as possibilities. The first one is our ability, this is across the whole of society, whatever your sector, whatever you're engaged in, to effectively, for want of a better word, pre-mortem events, run it yeah. out beforehand completely, get all your learnings done up front, and sort of have um, a toggle menu of variables. So you can play both realistic things that might happen, but then you can play Murphy's Law a little bit and say, well, what if this random event happened or that random event? And suddenly, if we can pre-mortem stuff, then we're able to look at output and consequence much more. And if we can understand consequence societally, you know, we will make better decisions, provided we codify that in the right way. 
we've got to work out a mechanism to codify this. The second thing, you know, maybe something that we can get after a little bit quicker is, and Arnold touched upon it earlier, it's like the whole hive mind type thing, you know, using a bit of science fiction reflecting reality, but it's, is using tech like gaming for a hive mind. 99% of the people probably in Fight Club I've never met and will never will meet, but they're probably looking at very similar problems to me on a daily basis. And now, in the old world, if I wanted all of their knowledge, I'd have to go around and meet them all and chat to them all and, and hear their views and have a debate. But actually, if they're all playing the same game and then the game is exploiting their lessons centrally and um, coming up with deductions that we can all benefit from, then you've got a hive mind. And I think the future of Fight Club is that it can generate a genuine hive mind kind of approach. And that is transferable. Because imagine now this age of sort of hybrid working that you had a blockchain company that's got sort of elements all over the world and you can hive mind behind one process in a way that you can't yet do today. That is transformational. And I think that's really exciting. And kudos to Arnel for getting the ball going. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I think it's one of the things which I, I actually see. So, I mean, obviously, I, I don't have any dealings with, with military side, but the, the future of organizations is absolutely. I, I don't think in the future you have one employer. It's this this coming together of people with certain talents to create almost a little cell, as you say, feeds off this data, feeds off this kind of collective intelligence. But no, can I just thank both of you for your time? It's been a fascinating conversation. It, it's a real honor, Chris. And uh, so anytime I get to chat back with my mate Nick Moran, it's, it's just a pleasure. We're always busy with our day jobs running around. So it's good to catch up with him and you. Wonderful experience here. Thank you. Thank you both. Thanks so much. You've been listening to Transitional Matters. Make sure to like, subscribe, and sign up to the show's email newsletter by going to chrismarshall.uk. And we'll see you next time for more from the world of mega trends and transitions. All content is for informational purposes only and does not constitute an offer or recommendation to buy or sell any securities. Content should be treated as educational and general and should not be seen as a recommendation to use any particular investment strategy.